Well, welcome to this episode of 824. I am your host, Dr. Valen S. Jordan. Today, my guest is Dr. Nina Asher, Professor of Curriculum and Instruction at University of Minnesota. Dr. Asher's work focuses on, focuses on post-colonial and feminist theory, globalization, critical perspectives on multiculturalism, and Asian American studies in relation to education. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So I've been really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, we've had some conversations in the past, both at conferences, um, where I've had some time just to ask you a bit more about your work, but this is more of an intimate sort of conversation. I'm letting people in on my, my fascination with your work and with you. And so I am really excited that you agreed uh, to this interview. So tell us a bit about your work. Okay, well, first of all, thank you so much for this very warm um, welcome and generous introduction, Valen. And I am honored to be included in a conversation um, to do with spirituality and social justice. Uh, my work, um, well, <laughs> when I was much, much younger and um, had graduated with my master's degree in social work in India, Okay, this is going to take two hours. No, it won't. But <laughs> so uh, I had um, been working that time uh, on what my then supervisor in India had called education intervention projects um, with marginalized communities, urban, rural, and quote unquote tribal. And it was that time that working on those projects as a recent grad with a master's in social work that I encountered. This was in the 1980s. So that's when I encountered Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. I decided to do a doctorate. And uh, I came to New York to Teachers College Columbia. I'd never been on a plane before. Yeah, it was the late 80s when I first came to New York. Um, and then by the early 1990s, as I'm trying to figure out a dissertation topic, again, Today, it's hard for us to think uh, about this, but it's at that time that the U.S. education field, like the discourse of multicultural ed was opening up, multicultural education, and um, there wasn't even really any literature on Asian American education at that time, except maybe one edited volume. Um, so I begin this project, which was intended to be with students from South Asian American families, their parents were immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. And then I kind of come across a post-colonial text, Homi Baba's Location of Culture at the Columbia University bookstore one day by chance. And I couldn't understand half the words in the book. Um, as I always tell my students, anytime I mention this work, that I still use a dictionary. Um, but there I am standing in the bookstore and realizing that there's something very exciting, that it's speaking to my dissertation, to questions about identity and culture through hybridity and the interstices. So lo and behold, next thing I am drawing on post-colonialism. And I'm so grateful that my professors and mentors then were completely open to supporting these adventures that were happening in my work. 
And then I um, also began drawing on post-colonial feminist writers, you know, Bell Hooks and Chandra Mohanty and Audre Lorde and Gloria Anzaldúa and others. And from that sort of engaging affect and spirit um, along with intellect, you know, um, the uh, emotional, the co cognitive, the spiritual, how they are intertwined in the work of um, kind of reaching towards equity, reaching towards liberation, towards justice. Um, so that kind of is a quick overview, I hope, <laughs> of uh, some of the themes that have brought me perhaps, you know, towards your podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have so many questions that are, and granted, you were just giving a brief sort of overview of how you've come to this place that you're at now. <laughs> So the first question is, why make the transition from social work to education? Mm, that's a really, really good question. Um, you know, one of the things I say in classes is which came first, the chicken, egg or the omelet? So <laughs> I just throw the omelet in for good measure. But the thing is, um, honestly, when I was a young person uh, in college in what was then Bombay, now it's Mumbai, but um, I got my bachelor's in psychology. And even then I knew that I wanted to do something connected with education. That said, at that time, I didn't have the lexicon that we now use, say, in US discourses of you know, social justice and multicultural ed and so on. This was in um, you know, the early 1980s in India. Um, so I couldn't find any such in social work. And then one of the faculty members um, at that university um, launched a research project to do with educational um, achievement and inequities and so on, and hired a, a few of us recent grads, etc. So that became kind of my entry and um, into, into the work I actually had been trying to articulate by then it was mid 1980s yeah mm -hmm. so you and I have so much in common so um I majored in, in undergrad I majored in psychology mm -hmm. um then I went the route of of becoming a special education teacher then I thought that I wanted to do social work and so I started a master's at Columbia in social work oh okay um, and I did not want to do that and then moved on to uh, do my doc work at TW. So um, at listening to you talk, it, it just sounds very familiar. Yeah, and as I'm listening to you, I'm nodding. I know that we can't see my head nodding, but I'm nodding because, <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. Okay, our, our journeys have some parallels. Yeah. Yeah, you. So tell me a bit about what it means to engage affect and spirituality. Are they one and the same or do the engagements happen separately? I guess my answer, the short answer would be yes and yes. <laughs> Emotional side, in contrast, and I'm doing air quotes when I say in contrast, because I try not to get too caught up in a binary. Affect is paying attention to um, the emotional. Certainly it connects with the spirit or the spiritual, but it may not for everyone, not all the time. And somebody may argue, one may argue that the cognitive aspect of one's work, one's thought is also um, 
can also have a spiritual component. So, you know, um, in terms of a distinction, um, hmm, that's a good question. I guess for now, what's coming to my mind is that um, when I think affect, I think more to do with the emotional side. When I think spiritual, I think more to do with um, almost like a meditative, reflective, self-knowledge kind of quality, which uh, again, the two are not divorced, affect and spirit or spiritual. Uh, but if I'm going to parse them out, that's a little bit, you know, what occurs to me now. Mm -hmm. And so how do we, I guess, when I'm thinking about how we sort of parse them out and not necessarily think about them as separate, because I would argue, I guess, alongside you in some way that um, the sort of the emotional component that we are driven by is connected to our senses of the spirit um, and how that drives us and motivates us to do particularly this work that we're talking about with regards to social justice. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious how we engage this within the field of education. And so I know in some, you've uh, written about a pedagogy of interbeing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious as to how we, if a pedagogy of interbeing requires an engagement of the affect and the spiritual as one, mm -hmm. and how, how do we actually make the moves and the steps to engage in a pedagogy of interbeing, whether it be inside the classroom or outside the classroom? Right. Uh, yeah. When I think about curriculum and pedagogy, especially in a conversation like this one, I think of them broadly, right? Like within the classroom, beyond the classroom, community context. So yes, I, I get that. Um, affect and um, the spiritual as one, um, I, I think it would depend on each person, each instance of um, whatever it is that they're doing, whatever work or thought they're grappling with. Um, uh, may, may, may I share a story with you from my mother was about how when my mother was a kid in what was then colonial India, it was still under British rule, right? It was still a, a British colony when she was a kid. And my mom, uh, they lost their home because there was a fire in 1944. And um, how they survived for a few days until they could find proper lodging, etc. It's a story that I feel like I've almost witnessed right? Because I heard it so many times. Um, so there's definitely, for me, like intellectual analyses of colonialism, scholarly analyses. There's also like a personal resonance in terms of, you know, the um, genealogy in terms of the women who came before me, my mother, my her mother, my grandmother, and how strong she was with getting all her children out of the house as the buildings around her were burning and tumbling down. And, um, and all this is true. You know, this is all this happened. Uh, and um, this was long, long before I was born. Nonetheless, I uh, have like a personal response. I ha also have a personal sense of strength that I come from women who were strong, right? So for me, there is in, in this intellectual, spiritual, 
effective strands um, that sometimes are completely intertwined. Maybe they're one or the intertwining makes them into like one braid. Um, and at other times they appear um, differently, you know? Um, may, may I make one more connection here? Yes. So, so um, in, I think, it, I forget what year it was, but I, one year, I was teaching at LSU then, and I wrote a poem to my grandmother. And um, in it, I found myself as I'm writing this poem about, and my grandmother, I'm glad I wrote it when I did, because as it turned out, she died a few months after I had written the poem. But um, as I was writing that poem, I found myself also citing bell hooks and how bell hooks wrote in her essay, Home Place, in her book, uh, Yearning, you know, 1989 book, I think. So, right. And hooks talked in, in that essay about how women through oppressions made home a space of dignity of strength, of safety, right? So for me, I mean, one might say that, oh, writing a poem. But for me, the poem was deeply personal. It was also kind of a way to honor the legacy of my grandmother. And then I was also drawing on my academic self. Do you see? I mean, it all happened spontaneously. Is that making sense? Right. Am I responding to your question? <laughs> no. Yes, I think you are with regards to how we think about affect and spirituality and intellectualizing this work that um, in many ways they're intertwined, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're not separate of each other and attempting to parse them out, I think gets to be a bit more difficult in asking the question of how do we parse them, parse them out mm -hmm. apart or make them separate of each other. Um, but the second part to the question was with regards to notions of interbeing mm -hmm. and engaging in a practice of interbeing. Mm -hmm. And so um, would you qualify the way in which you do your work to be part of a practice of interbeing? Mm, what, what a fantastic question. So, um, hmm, e yes, the short answer is um, yes. And um, honestly, you know, given that you and I are having this conversation today, it's, I think, May the 6th, 2020, in what I think of as the age of COVID-19, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like the message of interbeing, even outside of the context of our conversation today, the message of interbeing in the age of COVID-19, I think has been driven home very forcefully for all of us, right? So in terms of my own work, um, one of the greatest um, joys, honestly, of um, working in the US Academy, working with, especially with grad students, and I'm saying especially with grad students because the US Academy attracts graduate students from so many different um, places, you know, and from um, so many different parts of the country and the world. Um, and it is actually the great richness of um, working with the multiplicity of perspectives and experiences that students bring into the classroom. 
to interrogate, to speak to any topic. Um, and the work of um, making a, a piece of writing, a classroom discussion, um, moving forward the work around curriculum, whether it's curriculum theorizing, curriculum and context, which is the course I just finished teaching, um, making that work rigorous, relevant, and actually holding multiplicities, holding contradictions, Hmm. Um, and so help me out with this. And, and I've asked this question of others before. Um, I had, I spoke with someone, um, his name is Kevin Holohan. He's a assistant professor at Grand Valley State. And I, and I spoke with him for this podcast and I asked him to explain to me the difference between interconnectedness and interbeing. Are they the same hmm. thing? Mm-hmm. I have to think about that a second. Um, they could be. Okay. Because I think what I understand about interbeing is sort of this, this understanding of there is no other. Mm. Uh, and that we inter are, right? Like the way in which I see myself is mirrored in you and vice versa, right? Like we are reflections mm -hmm. of each other. And so this, the notion of, of being, right, is that it, that it's the existence that we all are experiencing at the same time in this present moment, mm -hmm. right? So consider that there are, there is no concept of other. And so, and I'm not sure if interconnectedness holds the same meaning or if they are, are different. And granted, when I had this conversation with Kevin, we both, spun in circles about it. So. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And I, I said they could be. Um, and for me, there was like a little bit of an ellipsis at the end of the B, you know, because um, see, to me, interbeing is, is hmm, deeper than, more comprehensive than interconnected. For instance, I might say, oh, yes, we are all interconnected. Um, with regard to uh, ecosystems or something. That said, interbeing, if I heard you correctly, um, it's almost like a sense of um, I am because everything else is and everything else is because I am. You know, it's it's kind of more, more fundamental, you know, um, more... Um, elemental i'm not sure what exact word to use um the the thing is this though the thing is this um i would hazard a guess that if one were just to just to do tally marks i think more people might be on the planet overall there's no scientific like data collection i've done right but <laughs> the more people on the planet might be more comfortable with saying, oh, yeah, we are interconnected, whether it's my faith, whether it's my worldview. In but interbeing where, where we are one, that makes people kind of twitchy, doesn't it? <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, what I guess for me, then the related question that's popping into my head is then, what does it mean for humankind? And again, in the age of COVID-19, um, what does it mean for us as 
equally to us human beings writ large to move towards um, recognizing the power of interbeing. What would that mean? You know, is a question that you're pushing me to think about now. May I share with you a poem that's been, I'm not going to read the poem out, but may I mention to you a poem that's been buzzing in my head for some time, but particularly also since COVID-19. Um, it was uh, a poem I first came across in grade school as a kid in India. It was part of my state mandated textbook, but it was a poem by Robert Frost. Uh, and it's, it's called A Considerable mm -hmm. Speck. And I, while I remembered it, I can't recite it. I hadn't read it in decades. And the other day, a week or two ago, I read it again. I just Googled everything shows up on Google and I Googled it and I read it. And um, in it, the poet Frost, I guess, but is sitting there and sees a speck on his page and thinks that this little speck, like, oh, sh should I squish it, right? And he, he's like, no, no, it has a mind. It's moving. It's, you know, and even as a kid in grade school, when I first read it, I knew that he wasn't just talking about a bug on a piece of paper. He was talking about us as human beings, right? So that time I didn't have the word inter R or interbeing at my disposal, you know, as a kid in school in Bombay in the 1970s. But today, when I think about it, that what makes a bug a bug and what makes me human? <laughs> Why in this life, Am I not a bug? Or maybe in somebody else's eyes, I am a bug. You know? <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't know if that's making sense or if I'm just rambling, but that poem has just been dinning in my head. No, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, particularly when we think about um, what brings about change and transformation within sort of humankind or outside of ourselves. Um, that we have to be more intentional about our reflections of the quote-unquote considerable. Beautiful, considerable yes. Stuff, right? Beautifully said, yes. Um, and, and I don't think, and I don't think we have all reached that level of contemplation yet. Because mm -hmm. um, it's difficult, right? Like, it's hard to sort of situate yourself to want to do that work and to maintain right. it. Yeah. Um, hmm. So would you say that, say then that in order for us to get to a better understanding of interbeing or what it means to, for us to notice our inter ness <laughs> that we um, need to be more intentional about our mindful contemplation or about sort of self-reflectiveness? Because I think in many ways, um, you know, post-colonial feminists, when we think about bell hooks particularly, right, she uses a lot of Buddhist framework, um, sort of draws on this idea about what transformation looks like and what our sort of self-reflective process needs to be in order for us, for us to sort of move past or see the limits to which oppression influences us and how we then... Um, need to sort of reconstruct or deconstruct our systems based off of our collective mm -hmm. nature. Yeah. 
Yes, and as I as um, absorbing your thoughts and question, I'm again nodding my head here, Um, and um, you know, one is um, you and I having this conversation. um, If I have it right, you are a practitioner of yoga. I I think you you do you also teach yoga? Do I have that right? Yeah, I don't teach yoga. Nonetheless, I. really need like hatha yoga as part of my life for me um contemplation is uh, like breathing you know i need it it's so when two people who see this kind of interbeing reflection contemplation as just part of who they are we can have a very comfortable conversation right But what happens if I am talking, say, to somebody, sorry, I'll just draw on a stereotypic notion, but say somebody who just sees dollar signs wherever they go, that their focus is to do with success defined by like corporate success or whatever, right? And they may do yoga, but that's not going to be central necessarily to their worldview. Do do, do you see what I'm saying? So so in in that sense, then... Um, what, so in terms of this work of interbeing, inter-R, um, what could, never mind the other person, this made up mythical person who sees dollar signs only, <laughs> but what would I need to do in terms of my interbeing, my capacity to interbe? to recognize and accept that there are many, many on the planet who don't think about interbeing, are not interested in interbeing in any conscious way at least, might even reject it. What what does it take for me to interbe then? (laughs) Right? I mean, Hmm. uh, tell me what you're thinking. I think what I'm thinking in, <laughs> about that is um, sort of the recognition of our of histories being mm-hmm. tied together, um, and I'm not sure if that's if if that's the sort of way to go with this. But I think when we are, if I need to be in consideration of my own interbeing, without someone else considering theirs, I think there is the open door for me to be more reflective and conscious of sort of our political, cultural, social histories that do bind us together. Um, And I think when I become more conscious of that and intentional about how I use that knowledge, um, then the space is opened up, right, for there to be how I engage with the world in a more transformative way, right? In a more um, open, accepting, nuanced way if I am more conscious and intentional about how I think about interbeing and or engage my contemplation, right? Because um, I think when we are more contemplative, right? And we are engaged in those contemplative practices that we do develop this flexibility mm-hmm. of self mm-hmm. um, also we also get rid of any sense of dualism right because i think the thing that keeps us stuck often is that we function mm-hmm. within a duality um, and i think the thing that keeps us stuck 
and I'm just going to say it, as academics yep. <laughs> who do, do this work, that we function in this duality, and that duality keeps us very much, um, keeps us in line with the boundaries that we have created yep. ourselves, right? Um, and so I think if we are to be in more consideration of what interbeing is or what it means to be inter R, that we uh, begin to chisel away at those bi those binaries. We begin to chisel away at the dualism. The boundaries start to disappear. Um, but I think the scary part is then what happens when the boundaries? <laughs> well, it depends on which boundaries and what context, right? Because um, you know, yeah. as as uh, as I was nodding, absorbing some of what you just said my um what popped into my mind was Thich Han's uh book pieces every step the path of mindfulness in everyday life and Thich Han, he talked about them making he and his colleagues making decisions about whether or not to um like be involved actively in resistance work activism or whether to um, focus like on the spiritual meditation. And he said, we decided to do both. So, and then from there, I, the dots I was connecting in terms of my life and work and the theme, the question here, I think, is to do with what happens when the boundaries go away and, you know, how do we live with these boundaries and differences that are there that we confront every day so what I was saying was that for me, my own sense of self-knowledge, my own sense of um, interbeing, um, I try, I don't always succeed, obviously. Um, that said, I try and reach for what is possible in this moment at this time. You know, which, which goal can I, which part of the goal or how do I tweak the, this larger goal? so that I'm moving towards it and accepting and acknowledging that I can't really accomplish the ideal. That said, given these constraints, here's what I can do at this moment, you know? So anyway, last um, summer, I was in the city of Lyon in France and um, I was walking back, it was very hot, there was a heat wave and I was walking back with some heavy groceries when like whether he was drunk or a person who was homeless i don't know but this guy who looked like he was a white french guy and whatever he asked me for money and i just shook my head no and i continued walking and he hurled a racist word at me it's like it's like saying the n-word in you know in europe they use a word for south asians what what we call south asians in the us but it, it's basically like a, it's a racist slur. And I was so stunned that before I knew what I was doing, I turned around, I stood there with all my heavy groceries in that heat, and I scolded him in French. And I don't know who was more surprised, he or I, because in French, I heard myself say to him, that's not nice. This is not how we treat people. And when I told one or two friends about this later, they said, wow, you humanized him in that moment. And I, ha I hadn't stood there thinking about all that. I was just stunned that he hurled a racist epithet at me. He probably, I don't know what he thought, 
But um, this is to say that I wasn't trying to reach for social justice in that moment or anything like that. I just automatically turned around and I said to him, that's not nice. We don't speak to people this way, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, and a, a, another friend had yeah. asked me when I, she said, would you have sa said something like that if it had happened right here? And I said, I don't know. I mean, this was just this strange moment. So uh, that said, that said, you know, uh, I've had other such conversations with people here, other people of color like myself, like us um, in the US uh, where, uh, you know, I'm like, if somebody is feeling angry and they take it out on me, I don't have to accept it. That doesn't mean though that I cannot understand their rage and their whatever it is that they are go I may not know it, but society is not done right by them. And if they're angry, that makes sense. It's not a wrong response. It doesn't mean I let people just dump it on me. So in a way, that's a both and, do you see? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And I think that's exactly what um, we had this brief conversation but before we started. But what David was talking about in his episode where he says, you don't do social justice, you be social <laughs> justice, right? And um, I think sharing in that is, exactly what he was attempting to to draw out right like you don't do the work you are the work yeah and when it comes up it comes up so i'm curious then um how do you see the connection of mind body spirit work um hmm. to everything that you do hmm. um well a couple of thoughts um, I can't say that I'm always able to live up to these thoughts. That said, I would say there are two, three things, maybe four things. Let's see. One is a sense of integrity. And from very early on in my doctoral career, um, you know, I learned that it's really just a wonderful thing if you have integrity across theory, research, and practice, say, your own teaching, your own research, your own theoretical constructs. That's one. So mind, body, spirit, um, integrity across mind, body, spirit. What would that mean? It would mean different things for different people. So for me, I can't say I always balance it out, far from it, but um, wellness, paying attention to being well in mind, in body, and in spirit. Um, how do I make that as perfectly natural, as central to myself as a human being, to myself as a woman, as queer person of color, as professor, you know, all of those, right? As a person in her social universe, friends, family, whatever. Um, so there's that notion of integrity I also think listening is really a powerful thing in terms of mind, body, spirit, whether it's listening to one's students, listening to what the universe is trying to tell you, listening to your mind, body, spirit, and soul, you know. Um, I think gentleness is really, really powerful. It's funny how in the West, like being strong and being gentle are often seen as like, contrasting or contradictory or 
you know, opposites. Um, I think gentleness allows in, invites in more of um, people's nuances and multiplicities, right? So um, I can't say always succeed with all of these again, but gentleness in terms of mind, body, and spirit, right? Uh, so yeah, and uh, did did I did I mention flexibility? I think I did. Yeah, yeah, and so and and flexibility too. Um, what does it take to be? These are questions I ask my own self fairly regularly. To be flexible uh, in terms of body, in terms of mind, um, in terms of spirit. I don't know if I think of spirit and flexibility. Uh, I think of spirit and openness, but maybe openness is one part of flexibility. Hmm, I'm not sure. Yeah, but maybe so. Yeah. So integrity, flexibility, listening, gentleness, those are, I think, for me, really important in terms of mind, body, spirit. And actually, I think all of those aspects allow one to be really strong too in mind, body, spirit. You know? So then do you have an answer for your question of what is what does it mean to be mm, flexible? No, I don't have an answer. <laughs> but but <laughs> but I might ha I might have some thoughts now that you've posed the question. Um, you know just the other day I was I think I was saying to students um that uh when I first learned to type as a young person in India, I was using, I don't even know if many people today, young folks would know, but a typewriter, right? And then came the computer. And now we have our little gizmos, our teeny tiny cell phones, which dominate all our lives. And so I tell myself in terms of flexibility that in the remaining decades of my life, uh, what else will I need to adapt to? You know, COVID-19 has pushed all of us there, hasn't it? Um, thing that is in my control really in, in this life is self-knowledge and my breath. The only thing I know to do is to continue to persevere with as much steadiness and to push myself to seek um, more clarity, uh, deeper understanding um, with as much steadiness that I, that I possibly can. And some days, you know what? All I want to do is watch some nonsense on TV or whatever, be switched off because I can't handle it on a particular day. It's just been too much, you know? And I've learned to permit myself that now and then too. Because some days I, I just have to let myself rest and then return to the work of mind, body, spirit in a more um, energized way, yeah. you know? I'm curious how you see conversations around spirituality happening within social justice discourse. Um, and if you think that maybe there needs to be more engagement about spirituality within social justice discourse. For me, 
honestly, one way then, um, that's a smart question actually that you asked as a follow-up here, because um, honestly, I mean, if one is focused on spirituality and the spiritual, then the notion of justice is integral to it, you know, um, because that allows us really then to um, recognize that if through interbeing, through if we inter are, um, then if there is inequity or just injustice for somebody else, it's also inequity and justice for me, do you see? So in that sense, spirituality and justice um, could very much be like, well, two sides of the same coin or um, come together uh, in a particular tapestry or whatever the metaphor, you know, um, as completely integral to each other. Did I, did I speak to your question or did I lose it? Yes. No, that, I think that was perfect. And I think that's, um, that gets exact, that gets straight to the point of understanding what justice is and, and what our role in justice is, right? And that if we are attending to the spiritual, that we are then in turn engaging in what justice is intended to do. Thank you so much uh, for your time. And I'm glad that we had a chance to connect outside of a conference um, in a very different way to explore some much needed uh, things right now. And um, yeah, so thank you again. Thank you, Valen, so much. I think your work is so timely, so soul and spirit nourishing and so necessary. And um, thank you so much for taking the time, for inviting me. Um, I look forward to a chance to continue to connect. Thank you for listening to this interview. And as always, if you would like to contact me, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Yoga for Social Justice. Be well.